You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. I was doing a little digging before uh, we hopped on this call. And, well, you know, we like to know what we're getting into here. And we haven't met formally before. But um, are you kind of a big deal? Well, I guess that depends on who you ask and in what context. I asked Google. I said, is uh, oh, okay. yeah. Is a big deal? And it said yes. Oh, okay. Well, if it's on Google, then it must be right. So it's my best resource. <laughs> so, so why don't you tell us, um, I read something about you being like one of the only, um, only people or the only one to have like your PhD and, um, another degree from Ivy League schools, both Ivy League schools, is that correct? Yeah, so there, it's pretty rare for registered dietitians to also have their doctorate. Uh, I think 4% of RDs also have their doctorate. So that in and of itself is fairly rare, but then it's very uncommon to have a combined position. So I graduated from Cornell University um, in Ithaca, New York, and they have a combined PhD RD position, which just means you can simultaneously earn your registered dietitian's credentials to be licensed to practice in conjunction with your doctorate. So I was accepted to that position and it's really selective. They only take one candidate per year. And so I was fortunate enough to get that position after my bachelor's degree. And so none of the other candidates um, or people who have graduated from there have specialized in sports nutrition. They're much more, um, well, there's a variety. I have some friends who they've done like women's health. So like PCOS, um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. One is now kind of at the more corporate level, working with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics at their headquarters. So there's a variety of different kind of specialties, but no one else has focused on sports nutrition. So how did, how did you become the one? What sets you apart? Um, that's a good question. So I, I transferred to Cornell um, kind of with the hope that I could get into this position um, because it is so competitive. And I had heard that if you do your undergraduate there, that that can be advantageous. So I transferred to Cornell. Um, I did really well in my undergraduate. Um, you know, I graduated summa cum laude and did well enough on the GREs um, to get some good letters of recommendation in addition to that. And so I think that you can kind of tell when someone's very passionate about what they do. And so I think it was more of a combination of factors rather than like one thing individually. Um, but I, I really wanted that position and I, you know, that was my goal for years. So if you want something, you can, you can make it happen one way or another. I, I agree with that. But at the same time at Cornell, which is an Ivy league school at that level of specialization, Everyone has good grades and everyone has good recommendations and powerful people to write for them. So I feel like there's still got to be something there that set you apart. I don't know. I mean, you would have to ask the director of graduate studies, but um, I also started doing research early. So I did research my, let's see, my summer between high school and college was my first experience in research. And I was working in a neurobiology lab looking at... um, brain cells in mice 
And so that was kind of my first experience in research. And then every summer subsequently, I kind of got into a different lab doing more research. And research experience is really important when you're applying to a doctoral program. So that was probably a big component as well. And so it doesn't help or it doesn't hurt to have a few published studies uh, before you're going into a doctoral program. They like to see that you can contribute to the, the body of science. For sure. Yeah. So... It's been a, a, a long road to get to where I am now, but it's been a really exciting journey. First of all, is this common, before we take a deep dive back and then we're going to get to all the good stuff, don't worry, but like, is that common to have a program where there's only one student? Like, is the program so intense that it's like, we only got room for one because we got to put all our eggs in this one basket? Like, how? I've never heard of that before. So can you fill me in? Yeah, it, it's definitely unique, uh, certainly. I had never heard of a, a program that's that competitive uh, either. So it was a little shocking and a little daunting to think that you're kind of shooting for the moon and you have a less than 1% chance of getting there. Uh, the year I applied, the director said there were 123 applicants. So I'm really glad that I knew that after the fact, not before. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's definitely competitive. Now the doctoral program itself takes roughly 10 students every year. So they're small classes to begin with, but then it's it's difficult to have that combination because you have to essentially stop your research or your, you know, your studies in order to go and do your internships. So to be a registered dietitian, you have to have, I believe it's 1400 hours of supervised practice. And so that required me to be working, you know, in a hospital for months on end um, to get those supervised hours in. And so it's a lot of work on like the department's end. And so I don't know exactly why they only take one because that does seem very selective. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not common. Yeah, I haven't heard of that, that before. Um, you know, to know how you got to where you got and then build the credibility to talk about what we'll eventually be talking about. It is important to take a step back, but I just find it like before we even go back, like I went to graduate school, right? Thinking I had a plan of what I wanted to do with my life and I'm not doing any of those things with my degree. Okay. And it set me up and I gained valuable knowledge and it led me here, but you're all in already at like a pretty dang young age. Like that's a big commitment. So obviously something stems from, your upbringing or your life experiences that led you so passionately into like a specific field. Like that's, you're not just putting a toe in the water. You're diving in head first. <laughs> why, why? You know, I've always been a really ambitious kid uh, my whole life. You know, my parents never had to tell me to do my homework. I loved school. I always wanted to go to school and to learn. And, um, and that's probably why I took education to the nth degree and, kind of got to the highest point that I could is because I enjoyed it. And I still to this day, I love learning. I, you know, like to read the latest research and always stay on top of what's new, you know, what's trending, what's coming out and really try to think about how can I apply this to other people to kind of help them. So I like connecting with people and helping them. And I think that's initially what drew me to nutrition is Originally, I was thinking I wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. And then I did an internship and realized that they were all like really burnt out, had no work-life balance, and I didn't see myself fitting into that category. And so I realized that nutrition can have a big impact on how people feel. And I was an athlete my whole life as well. And so kind of putting those two together and realizing, oh, what I eat can affect how I feel, how I run. and 
kind of going with that and realizing then, oh, wait, there's a science that does this. That is so cool. And that's kind of how I set my sights on sports nutrition and then, you know, drill down to see like, well, how far can I take this? How deep can I go? And that's what led me to finding this combined program. So Bracken and I have been open. We've been doing this podcast for like just over a year. We've got some good, you know, like momentum going. But one one thing that we've we've avoided, and I don't know if I would say it's with intent, is the the nutrition piece of things. And and I'm educated in it. I have a degree in holistic nutrition, but like um, we still avoid it because it's so. What would you? How would you describe it, Bracken? The reason we've avoided the nutrition top topic of conversation. It seems that it attracts the same conversation as politics and religion does. <laughs> and that people are emotionally attached to a system rather than maybe a set of beliefs. And Kirk and I both have our very concrete feelings about things, but we know that there are many ways that people get to the same point. And it opens up for extreme passion from listeners <laughs> without much payoff. Like there are some points, like there are hills we will die on because we believe so strongly in it. But with nutrition, we've seen that there are so many people that can be the exception to the rule that will die on that hill against us that it hasn't seemed like we are willing to open up, jump into that water for the minor little return that Kirk and I personally will see from it. And so we will bring in a professional, but like we will staunchly defend our beliefs, but nutrition hasn't been one of those. We've skirted the issue for a long time. That's right. And also we've had the reoccurring theme that when we bring a female athlete on, they tell a different story than the male athletes tell. And then as soon as we started hearing that story, which is I was medically removed from my university because I was no longer, I, I was considered a danger to myself with my eating disorder or my coach imposed this upon me and it led to this body dysmorphia. As soon as that started happening, the guy story started coming out and it kind of felt like we, like we were shoveling in the ground, we hit something and it turned out to be much bigger than we anticipated it had been with our little blinders of our sport. And so it kind of feels like it's led towards someone like you who can approach both issues at the same time with a knowledge base and a degree and experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're very smart in kind of your approach to integrating nutrition into your different topics here because it is very controversial um, and people can be very dogmatic about it. Everyone eats and so they kind of think that they're an expert in nutrition or if something works for them then it should work for everyone and they want to make sure that you're doing what they're doing mm -hmm. and so people can get very you know, defensive and upset over nutritional topics. And so, yeah, it has kind of gotten into this, you know, controversial camp along with politics and other other topics that people are kind of like, you know, you just won't approach that. So you have to, you know, be careful when you are talking about it and, you know, keep an open mind. I think that's, that's the key is people can be very dogmatic. And that's something that I really try to be careful about is reading the literature, staying on top of the research and not trying to reflect any personal bias or what's worked for me personally and really go based on an evidence uh, perspective rather than just experience. And that's the tough part, right? Evidence-based practice exists in most provable fields and nutrition can be very easily manipulated to yeah. prove what you're intending to prove. And so keeping bias out of it is really difficult. 
Absolutely. And there's a lot of bad science out there too. And I'm not here to rag on scientists. Like I'm one of them, but um, you know, I'd like to give scientists the benefit of the doubt, but nutritional research is extremely difficult to do both logistically, but also financially and, you know, time-wise they're expensive. They take a lot and, you know, it's just hard to control people. And the problem is if you do control them and I've done metabolic studies where, you know, you have bring them into the metabolic ward and we study them there. It's just not very realistic, right? Because we don't live in a single room typically. So although maybe during quarantine, we're kind of all. <laughs> no kidding. Well, and most of those big, not most, but a large percentage of major expensive studies need to be funded. And the people with skin in the game fund the study. And who's going to go against your $20 million endowment for the study? if it negates the purpose of what your your sponsors wanted in the first place. So you're right, it is tough to navigate. It is, and so that's something too that you wanna be careful when you're looking at the literature is, I feel like nowadays people will like to wave a paper in your face and say, ah, here's evidence that you know XYZ is a good diet. And you have to go beyond that. Just because there's a published paper doesn't mean that it's factual or relevant. And so, leading into kind of the women's topic is, you know, most studies in exercise science are done on men. And so we can't just extrapolate from that research and, you know, slightly reduce it and call it female recommendations, because we now know that it doesn't, it doesn't extrapolate and you can't, it doesn't translate that way. Hmm. I'm excited to get into all of that. Uh, I want to just sort of make sure that we, so most of our listeners are athletes and I want them to be able to relate to you on that front first, because again, doing my Google search, uh, I found out that you were actually a pretty dang studly runner yourself back in the day. So can <laughs> we actually just start a little bit about you first, your upbringing, um, like where your athletic career, and then if you want to tie in your fascination with nutrition along the way, but like, where did this all start for you? Like your, your athletic journey, we will call it. Yeah. So I started in gymnastics when I was three um, in tumble tots. And I've always been in some kind of sport ever since. I wasn't crazy specialized. Um, I played tennis, lacrosse. Um, what else? I was on the equestrian team in college, which is horseback riding. Um, but really, I would say my best uh, sport was running track. Um, I also threw discus. Um, really? And, yeah, and I was a sprinter. So the classic equestrian discus combination. <laughs> the age old. So, um, yeah, so track was really kind of my jam. I loved it. And I love to make fun of the endurance athletes. Cut her off. We're stopping the podcast. I work with mostly endurance athletes now. I, I see all kinds of athletes, but primarily work with endurance just because that's where nutrition seems to be most uh, difficult in terms of implementing strategies to get their results. So I, I, I want to interrupt really quick. And this is such a tangent, but now I just have to, because I thought of something and now I have to say it. Um, somebody told me, I want to know your thoughts on this. And this has to do with the sprinter. Somebody told me that at like the 2016 or 12 Olympics, that Usain Bolt only ate McDonald's chicken nuggets for 10 days straight there. And I didn't believe them. Okay. I went and did the research and in an interview, he said he ate whatever Chinese food or whatever it was. It didn't agree with him. And so he knew chicken nuggets from McDonald's were safe and he ate roughly a hundred chicken McNuggets a day and broke all the world and Olympic records in that showing. Um, can you confirm or deny that you've heard this and this, if this is true? I have not heard that. So that is news to me. Um, 
I don't think it's necessarily untrue. I've heard of a lot of athletes. I mean, if you look at Michael Phelps, he's kind of famous for his junk food diet. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I could I could see that being the case, especially if he had a, a bad experience with the Chinese food. I always tell my athletes, you know, race week, stick to foods that you're used to. This should not be the time to try that new Mexican restaurant that just opened up. Like, stick to familiar foods. So that's possible. I wouldn't recommend that. He said breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 10 days straight. He didn't put one thing in his body other than chicken nuggets and water. What he said in his interview. But anyways, you were talking about sprinters and endurance athletes that popped into my head. You guys can fact check that later, I guess. But continue your story. We should bring him on the podcast and ask him. It's not quite that you know, easy. He was, he was second behind you on our list. Oh, okay. I feel so, so honored here. So, so what age were you when you started track and field? So I started in sixth grade. So... Gosh, how I don't know how you are. What was what was middle school track like at your school? Was it a free for all, or did you have some real coaching? No, we had some real coaching, and we had some good coaches, honestly. Um, they, and they were kind of specialized, so we would break up into groups. We would kind of all do a general warm up run together, just to kind of warm up, stretch out a little bit. But then we would have our specialty, so the sprinters would go off, and you know the kind of longer distance, middle distance, we would sort of break up um, to work on training. And there was never really a question about like, well, should you run sprint? Should you run more long distance? You know, I was just immediately kind of put in that sprinter category. I don't know, maybe it's because I'm short too. I'm only 5'2 and I have really short legs. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that has something to do with it. I was never asked to do uh, hurdles. Steeples was never my thing. So um so I just, I've always been a sprinter um, until I got a little bit older. In college, I did a triathlon for fun. Um, and then I, I really liked horseback riding. I have family up in North Dakota. And so I'd kind of grown up um, over the summer visiting them and riding horses. So that's how I got onto the equestrian team. And that was a fun experience. And now uh, postgraduate school, um, I just like staying active in general. Like I'll do a 5K and stuff. My husband is... Um, a former pro triathlete. So we just like to stay active and, um, and I'm not training for anything right now, especially with, with COVID going on. But in general, just, you know, getting outside when I can and staying active is enjoyable. But you were a multi-time state qualifier in the sprints, weren't you in high school? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, and I actually, I was, I was better at uh, sprints than I was throwing discus. And they actually put me on shot put, which was uh, entertaining. Um, and so sprint was definitely my best, my best event. And then I also did, um, I was part of a medley relay and was the, the hundred meter leg of that. So hundred, 200 primarily, or do you branch out to some four hundreds? I never got up to four hundreds. No. Hundred, 200, which one was your best? Would you qualify for state in? A uh, hundred meter. Yeah. Three years in a row. Yes. That's impressive. What, what, what were you, what, were you considering running in college? You know, I didn't consider running in college just because I was so focused on academics. That was my primary focus and goal. And so I was, you know, active throughout college. And um, I worked in the weight room as a, like a team trainer and helped out with the coaches, um, putting the athletes through their workouts. And so I liked that active lifestyle, but I didn't want to fully commit to being a part of the running team just so that I could make sure that I had enough time and energy for my studies. And where'd you start before Cornell? So I started at St. Olaf, which is okay. a small liberal arts college. 
How would you describe your diet uh, in high school and early college? For perspective, were you, what was your diet like back then? It was not, I would say it was not what I would recommend now. It right. was pretty, it was pretty restrictive looking back on it. Um, I kind of fell into a lot of the common pitfalls of runners in terms of like thinking about, you know, the quote unquote clean eating, um, not having processed or fast foods. And so I would say it was unnecessarily restrictive. Um, and in the long run, you know, I would say it probably held me back in several events. You know, it's like you can still do well, but I don't think you can really reach your full potential if you're not optimally nourished. And so it's probably one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about helping athletes fuel now is because it's like, hey, you know, you can do so much better if you can get past that mental discomfort of thinking like, oh, I'm eating more than I should. Because I think there's so much stigma and especially in the running culture that thinner is better and faster. And now we have evidence, you know, published in the literature showing that that's not the case. And I try to help them understand that that's only true to a certain point. And then it's more really about trying to get those nutrients in rather than getting as lean as possible. So you started under fueling initially. Yeah, I would say so. And I never, I've never been like a vegetarian or a vegan or anything. Um, I've always tried to kind of include a wide range of foods. But when I started getting interested in nutrition, there was this initial kind of phase where I knew enough to be dangerous, but not enough to really know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like you get into these blogs or Google searches, and they can be really misleading and flat out wrong. And so I think in the attempt to try to have like the best runner's diet, you end up unnecessarily cutting out certain foods that are harmful, not just physically, but mentally too. You start to get into this sort of restrictive pattern. And that was back in high school. You were already pretty health conscious. Like you were cognizant of what you were eating even back then. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And then uh, in college, I also got into fitness modeling, which probably did not help the whole uh, restrictive eating um, situation because that is just a, a culture unto its own. But it's this, it's very similar to, you know, running in the sense that that leanness is just prized and health is kind of thrown to the wind. I didn't anticipate us going this direction, but I'm glad we are. Because one thing that the the modeling industry or any sort of fitness competition is known for is cutting. Mm -hmm. Like you, you exist in your normal stage. There's some people even include their bulking stage. And then there's always a drastic cutting stage, both to lose anything extra weight and then just totally shred down, obviously water to bring out all your muscle striation. That's known as part of that. But something that I've seen now since Kirk and I have gotten more and more entrenched in, in the coaching realm of, of, of endurance sports is that runners want to tactically cut weight rather than melt the weight away over time. It'll be our races in two weeks. I know I race better eight pounds lighter and people. We even heard it this weekend in Jacksonville from some top pro athletes that they finally got their weight down this week. And and it, it, so I want to, I do want to explore the concept of cutting. And if you think that makes more sense later, we can get to it later. But the idea of the depletion versus the naturally getting down to that weight and the people see it as just a number issue when it's more than that. 
Yeah. And I think that a lot of athletes kind of miss the mark on their, you know, weight and their performance and they sort of lose sight of the whole purpose. And they suddenly start focusing on their race weight or their competition weight instead of how am I performing? And so, you know, I generally recommend that athletes like you don't need to weigh yourself unless unless you are in a weight class sport. So if you're in crew or wrestling and you have to weigh in to compete, then that's one thing. But for running and, you know, obstacle course races, like they don't weigh you to compete. So, you know, it's like, don't, don't lose sight of what's important. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And that's going to be your performance and your health. And if your training is on point, if your nutrition is good, your weight will take care of itself and not flipping those priorities and saying, I have to get down to this weight thinking that that's going to equate to better performance. And so I've seen that a lot and athletes, make the big mistake of thinking like, oh, well, you know, I'll just sort of cut weight drastically and that's going to, you know, bump up my performance. And it's like, you need that energy to get those training adaptations and to also recover and to fuel those workouts because otherwise you just end up digging yourself into a hole and end up sick and injured. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm curious about your history of cutting weight is how it worked over time. How long were you a fitness model for? Let's see. I was a fitness model for a few years. So I want to say like three years. Okay. How many cycles of cutting did you have throughout that time? Oh, that's a good question. The thing is, it's a little bit different with fitness modeling because it's not a competition per se. So I didn't have as strict of like phases as like a a competitor would for, you know, Mm -hmm bikini contest or physique contest or something like that. So it really depends on when your photo shoots are. So I, what's, if I had to guess, you usually do a couple, I would usually do like two photo shoots a year. So I would guess at least six cycles. Did you find that your body responded to that process? Did it, I mean, our bodies are incredibly smart and adaptive and they respond to stimulus and they adapt, which is how we get better as training. But they do the same thing to things like that. What did your body, like what was cut number six like compared to cut number one? In some ways it gets a little easier because you know what to expect. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think mentally it's a little bit easier to prepare, but it's also a little more painful in the sense that your body's like, oh my gosh, are we doing this again? Seriously? Um, And so over time, I think you're, patience for lack of a better term your body just doesn't want to go there again because it's not a healthy place to be and so you want to be very strategic about how you approach it and trying to maintain your health as much as possible um, as long as you can during that process so I don't remember distinct differences in terms of like necessarily feeling but I do remember towards the end it just got more difficult and a little more monotonous in the sense that I think your body is just kind of like so over trying to do that. Um, It's quite unhappy that you're trying to put it through that. And so I would say, you know, to athletes, it's like, you really don't want to be cutting weight if you don't need to. And is that absolutely essential for your performance? Because I think you're kind of biding your time in terms of what it's going to put up with and how it's going to perform and respond. So um, you definitely notice changes over time. And I think it depends too on how, how quickly and how spread apart your different cuts are. Okay. And there's also a very big difference about aesthetics versus performance, of course, 
so they're kind of like, you know, comparing apples to pizza, right? They're not even in the same realm because the performance aspect is is probably not part of the fit, fitness modeling. But um, let's go back. Okay, so you're at St. Olaf and, um, and you're in school there. Uh, we still haven't gotten to like your decision or what led you into being passionate about what you do today, or at least the forethought on it. Um, can you can you just walk us through how that happened? Like where that decision was made, we'll say? Yeah, so uh, my freshman year, I was doing, a, we had to write a 10 page paper on our, our dream career. And by that point, I had realized that I didn't wanna be uh, a pediatric neurosurgeon given the lack of work-life balance. And so I was like, well, I would love to help people with their food, right? I was like, you can make a career out of this. That's fantastic. So I started researching for this paper and I found out you have to be a registered dietitian in order to legally practice um, and give dietary advice in, in certain settings. And so I was like, well, that changes things because St. Olaf does not have a dietetics program. And so in order to become a registered dietitian, you have to do certain classes as part of your undergraduate. And so I had to make the decision. I either stay at my current school and I was really happy there. I liked, you know, St. Olaf. It had, you know, challenging academics. I had great friends. Um, or I had to transfer schools to kind of pursue this goal of mine. And I thought, all right, well, I don't want to give up what I want most for what I want now. And so I decided to take the risk and transfer. And I started looking at different schools um, to find out what was going to be a good fit for me. And I really enjoy that academic rigor. I like that challenge. And so I wanted to find a school that I thought could provide that. And so that's where I put my sight on um, Cornell and applied for it. It's in thankfully was accepted. And so I, I transferred out there not knowing anyone. I'd never been to the East Coast before. And so uh, I transferred there and I absolutely loved it and really got into the sciences of it. And it was really fun and to see how learning about nutrition changed my own personal uh, kind of diet and how I ate and approached food. And so it was definitely an evolution. And I think you're never done learning. And so it's still a fun, fun process, but that's kind of what led me to the science aspect of it. And then getting into the research, um, I really liked the idea that you could find out something that we don't know and kind of discover a little piece of truth that's unknown at the moment. And so I got into uh, studying um, human research. I started in a muscle physiology lab and I was like, oh, I really don't want to just do like Petri dish studies. You know, there's a place for every aspect of research, but um, doing in vitro studies just wasn't exciting for me in the same way. And I wanted to work with people because I think the best research really is that that's human. And, you know, it doesn't always correlate well with what we see in in vitro studies and what you see in human studies and so i wanted to do something that could really have an impact on kind of people and you know move the the field of nutrition forward a little bit with human research so i worked with um a different advisor then so that i could be doing uh controlled human studies instead and so that's where i kind of got into uh looking at my area of expertise and so 
my research was on the precision of body weight regulation. And so I did some intermittent fasting studies um, and some different types of like overfeeding studies um, to try to figure out some of those mechanisms and looking at how is our our body fat specifically controlled and sort of the set point versus settling point range in humans. That is very interesting. I actually want to dive into that instantly before we even continue. If you had to summarize what you discovered in that study, what was it? I would say that the human body is pretty remarkable. Um, We actually got some interesting results. One of my studies was um, our time-restricted feeding study, and it wasn't much. We were just doing a 12-hour feeding window, and oh my goodness, you would have thought we were asking participants to sell their left kidney. They were just (laughs) 12 hours. You know, I weigh their evening wine or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh. So it was, it was challenging um, working with human participants, but it was also very eye-opening. And the results were pretty surprising. We didn't see any change, significant changes in weight loss between controls and the time-restricted feeding. Um, and in fact, we saw a lot of restrictive behaviors that were a result of the time restriction control um, setting. And so we started to kind of dig into that more. So I did a follow-up study that was, um, you know, doing sort of exit interviews and doing more of a qualitative study and trying to get to the bottom of, well, what was going on? What were you thinking during this time? And we found that that time-restricted feeding really started to implement some restrictive behaviors and caused some binging behaviors as well that we were not expecting. Mm. In a vacuum, are you a proponent of time-restricted feeding or is it impossible to put humans in a vacuum? And so you can't speak on that. No. um, Again, there's definitely a difference between, you know, controlled settings and sort of the real world. And participants spoke to that in some of their, in the exit interviews, they had said that it's really challenging if they have, especially like kids or families, people who were single or lived alone had a much easier time with it. They didn't have the social interactions that people with families or kids did. And so it made it easier if they were single. Um, But I personally think that time-restricted feeding gets a little more clout and a little more press and glory than it deserves at the moment. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing for everyone, but I think it's certainly not beneficial for some individuals. And I think that, you know, it's like a lot of fad diets where it kind of gets more credit than it deserves. But I think especially with women and athletes, it's not advisable. Can you speak... um just to one sentiment with like intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding, um, aside from weight, aside from performance, um, any correlation between let's say like GI issues or distress and the, the theory behind giving your GI system just a little bit of a break instead of constant demand all the time. Is there any studies or do you have any thoughts on that? just been like GI compromised individuals? Yeah, I know. And I'm not a GI specialist, so I am not familiar with the latest research on that specific component. But, you know, there is a theory that it can be beneficial to give the digestive system, you know, a break, if you will, Mm -hmm. and give it, you know, time to rest or repair. But then again, that doesn't necessarily apply to all systems in the body. You know, kind of like we would never have like, you know, give our heart a break, right? I mean, well, we should have our heart (laughs) 
And it's like, nope, that's its job. It's supposed to keep going. And so <laughs> it gets it gets very complicated very quickly because again, if you're controlling what it is they're eating, if you look at what people are eating around the clock, those later time periods, they're typically not eating carrots and hummus at 1030 at night, you know, so the, the food quality is a bit dubious at some points. And so it's really difficult to say, oh, well, it's the fact that they're eating at this time. And it's more about what it is that they're eating that can be uh, questionable. I like that. And I don't want to belabor this time restricted feeding topic. But one of the most interesting papers I read early on as the fad kind of hit the public consciousness was the idea, and I'm really going to oversimplify this for 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 the, the purpose of this, and you can step in and stop this analogy if it's wrong. But the main takeaway of that was that the human body can be seen like a, a set of wireless headphones, where it has so many recharge cycles in it before it loses its effectiveness. And that by limiting the number of cycles you put any system through, you actually can expand your, in essence, the the, the length of your, your life by, you know, your battery recharges less and so it holds its charge longer. Is that, has that been proven or disproven over time? Because I know that many people I spoke to early on were looking at it less from a performance aspect and more from a longevity and quality of life standpoint. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest areas of study with time restricted feeding is in that longevity um, perspective. And so I think that's a really interesting analogy. I haven't heard that. I don't think we have enough research to conclusively say one way or the other, whether that's true or not. Okay. Um, most of the studies we have are animal models and it, we can't extrapolate from animal models to humans in terms of the outcomes. And so most of the, the models are used are mice, sometimes rats, but most of them are mice studies. And so to have a mouse fast for one day, that's a huge percentage of their life, right? A mouse lived for over two years. And so that's a much larger percentage of their lifespan to go fasting. So we can't say, oh, well, you know, if a mouse fasts for a day, we should fast for a day and get the same result. It, it doesn't work that way. So I think we need more research. Um, but I think it's definitely possible that there could be some uh, some benefits to that. But I think it's going to be in certain populations. And I don't think that it will be necessarily ubiquitous. Okay. My last tie in before we move on with your your life journey, because we keep getting sidetracked, but I think in informative ways, is that there are a decently large number of athletes, endurance in particular, who they really are proponents of having scheduled fasts outside of just you know, your feeding window, occasional 24, 36 hour fast in their weeks or months as, as a, and they extol that as a benefit. What have you seen as a doctor, not as just an athlete trying it on themselves to refute that or to support that? I haven't seen a lot of supporting evidence showing that there are benefits to that. Um, again, there could be evidence that I haven't seen yet, but um, you know, I don't want to say like, oh, this definitely doesn't work or definitely does. And I think a lot is going to be based on the individual. But from what I have seen in the literature, um, it seems to be more problematic in the long run than the short term um, based on, you know, individual outcomes. But again, people are going to handle that differently. And I think a lot depends on 
you know, their past history, their current status in, in terms of like their weight, their body composition, are they male or female? So there's a lot of different variables. And hopefully as we get into the future of sort of personalized and individualistic medicine, that we can better recommend treatments or protocols to individuals that can help them and sort of leave the rest that's not going to be beneficial. I'm sure there's so many aspects of this all that haven't been. I mean, it's hard to study every single scenario or model. Like we had Rich Ryan on the podcast and that was our one nutrition episode up to this point. And he was struggling with asthma and he said, well, I stopped eating Cliff Bars and my asthma stopped being a problem. So I stopped eating Cliff Bars. I was like, that's a study of one and we don't yeah. know what it is, but if it's true, it's true. Right. So like, there's probably how many examples of that? Um, I want to know, so you're in school, you're doing this research, which is already really piquing my interest. I'm still very curious with you on a personal level. Like you're, uh, do you have like a personal story about like how, like you were just either super curious and interested innately about nutrition and nutrition and performance, or do you have like a story of your own that pushed you this direction? I guess I'm just sort of curious still about that piece. Yeah, no, I think I've always been pretty intellectually curious. And, you know, when I was running track, I wasn't really focused on nutrition at the time. And so it's like, you know, I think about my gosh, I would have like a handful of nuts right before I would sprint. And it's like, gosh, I would never recommend that now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I certainly didn't have everything together uh, as a middle school athlete. Um, but yeah, I was always curious about how the human body works. Biology was always my favorite subject in school. And I thought the human body was fascinating. And so, you know, discovering that there is a science to food and how what you eat affects everything down to the cells and your genetics. I just totally nerded out on that and dove into that realm. So I've always been science and math oriented and pretty sequential type A. And so English class is always a challenge for me. I didn't really get into the whole poetry stuff. Um, so, so I think that science has always been a good fit for me. And then, you know, kind of as I got into to studying um, different areas in school, because I started out at the liberal arts college, you know, you have to take classes across a wide variety of, of um, disciplines. And so really gravitating towards the science and then again, just having an interest in, in food, I thought was so cool. It is cool. I wish I had somebody like you around when I was younger. I am, um, my parents, you know, it was a matter of convenience growing up and this goes all the way through high school. And then you bring those habits into college where I started learning about nutrition in my undergrad kinesiology degree and all those things. But I mean, it's really thinking every day we had open campus lunch and we would go to McDonald's and get a double quarter pounder with cheese and fries and a big Coke. And we'd go to my house and play video games. That was our habit in the morning was a big sugary bowl of cereal because that's all I knew. If I had a race that day, you know what I did? I went to McDonald's and got two supersized fries because I thought I should carve up, right? And that's at noon. And I have a race at 3.30, right? All these things. We had large pizzas at Papa John's. Like every day was just such crap. And for me, it was, you know, in college, I started learning about nutrition, being like, oh my God, what's a micronutrient? I need those two. Like, I don't get that all from my supersized fry and Big Mac. <laughs> Anyways, so like, that's how, that's how it came to be to me. And I wish I had, I don't know, I wish there was somebody like you around and maybe there are now, cause this was a while ago to just help with that whole side of things. And I'm sure you do today. Yeah. Well, I wish I would have had someone like me back then too, because <laughs> I was a lot like you. I mean, I grew up on, you know, sugary cereal and, 
you know, my, my parents tried, like you had a relatively good diet, but like I still had gushers and, you know, Mm -hmm. cookies, you know, kind of everything that a typical American kid would have growing up. And I don't know, Kirk, I think we turned out okay. So I think so. Well, if you, do you have kids? I don't. You don't. And again, this may be another tangent, but it's just, I'm just thinking through my younger years. Like, how would you approach that with your future children? If you plan on having them, like they're a young athlete, you know, you turned out all right, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, so like, how do you guide that in a healthy manner? I think is kind of tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would try to, you know, encourage a, a healthy diet and really focusing on real foods, but also not putting foods off limits, because I think we have a fairly strong basis of research showing that anytime you start restricting foods, that you're going to cause some sort of psychological alterations. And you don't want to start, you know, creating habits of binging and restricting. And so telling them that, yeah, you know, we focus on mostly real foods, but it's okay to have those treats and to not make things, you know, taboo or forbidden and off limits. So that way they don't feel compelled, like they have to go to a friend's house to eat them or, you know, craving certain things. And so I think it's really about balance. And that's kind of how I eat now too, is I focus on mostly real foods, but you bet I go out for ice cream or, you know, sushi or whatever, um, to try to have those good times with friends and family and kind of balance life in general. Does sushi get thrown into treat meals? Well, I eat a lot of sushi. <laughs> if so, I'm in trouble. Sushi is my favorite food. So uh, let's just say it's a large order when we go. You know, Bracken likes to roll the... Bracken and I had a race down in Jacksonville, Florida, and we stopped at a grocery store with a market to get our lunch the day before. And I wanted I wanted like a potato, a vegetable, and like a protein, right? I just wanted a balanced meal. And Bracken just, his head's on a swivel, looking for the grocery store sushi. <laughs> Talk about rolling the dice. And then we had it in the car and it had to be warm for a half hour, 45 minutes, right? Before oh, you, half hour no, before you touched it. No. Yes, half hour. I started eating it immediately. Yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, anyways, that's how much Bracken likes sushi. That's a gamble the day before a race. You talk about you stick to what you know. I have tested out every major grocery store chain sushi, and I found that Publix, which is what we I sourced out down there, Publix mm-hmm. is has a reputation for fresh sushi. It's not restaurant quality, but it is one of the safer things I can eat while traveling the day before a race, and so I stick with it. So you didn't, sorry, I'm personal jab. You didn't drop out of the race because of bathroom issues. It was a calf issue a mile in. Unless the tuna tore my calf muscle, I think I would say. <laughs> okay, tangent. Um, I did want to ask you something because we were talking about time-restricted feeding and and cutting and stuff. And just to tie that conversation together before we continue again with your story, um, do you believe that there is such a thing as sort of like metabolic sabotage? Um, you talked about developing restrictive eating habits due to whatever circumstances. Um is that something you believe in and can happen? Too restrictive of eating can lower the metabolic rate and thus almost hinder your fat loss attempts? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So that's, I would say that's pretty uh, unequivocal in the literature at this point. So what happens is as you decrease your calorie intake, your body at some point is going to start to start resisting that. And so it's going to start making adaptations. And so you hear this word, you know, metabolic damage. And I think that's really dramatic. It's not damage. It is reversible. Um, And 
it's really looking at adaptation. So you already mentioned the body's really resilient. It's very smart. And so its job is to keep you alive. It doesn't really care so much about what you look like, but its job is to keep you alive. And so when you start restricting your intake, it doesn't know if that's intentional or unintentional, right? The body doesn't know like, Hey, I'm doing a six week cut, hang in there. Like all these is that it's starving and it doesn't know for how long it's going to have to starve. So it says, I better start slowing down my metabolic processes to try to, you know, elongate my life as long as possible because it thinks that it's starving to death. And so what happens is we see changes in certain biomarkers. So your thyroid hormones can start to get off whack. And yes, your metabolism is going to start to slow. So if you, let's say we're initially in a 300 calorie deficit, now your metabolism is slower, you're eating the same amount, maybe now it's only a 200 calorie deficit because you are burning fewer calories at rest and doing different activities. So what happens though is as you start to increase your calories, your metabolism, your metabolism is going to start to get back to where it was um, you know, to some degree. Now there are extreme conditions. Um, they've done studies on like the biggest loser contestants and they've shown that there are some differences and that they don't get back to their baseline metabolism, even after they've recovered their initial body weight. So I think that those are really extreme, but if you're talking about sort of a general, you know, person or athlete, um, if they gain that weight back, their metabolism is going to kind of rebound and get back to that higher level that it was before they started cutting or losing weight, whether that was intentionally or unintentionally. That, that makes sense. How would somebody know if they're flirting with that? The reason I ask is this. So I have a personal training business and I would say, and of course I coach athletes as well, but I would say a third to half of my in-gym clients are fat loss clients. They come in and they need to lose some more significant weight. And so I put them on a nutrition prescription, which I think is balanced, healthful, still provides enough calorie for micro and macronutrition, um, but also achieves the results we want, which are long-term health, which means you need to lose weight, right? How is how do you determine like if if you are flirting with that line or not? Is there a way to know? Yeah, there are some signs that you can start to see you might be experiencing metabolic slowdown. So one of those is if they start to feel cold a lot of the time. So, you know, if everyone else is comfortable and they like have sweaters on and they are chilly, that can be a sign that their metabolic rate has decreased and that their um, their thyroid hormones can start to be out of that sort of ideal balanced range. Um, another one is just feeling really tired all the time. So, you know, if you're in a calorie deficit, your body is going to start trying to conserve energy. Um, other signs, it could be their hair starts thinning or even falling out. Um, those can be some big red flags. Um, Bracken's and- making a weird face over there. Is that coincidence, Bracken? right, Bracken? Yeah, total coincidence. Um, I'm tactically bald, Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, and also if they're like chronically hungry, that can be a sign that their ghrelin and their leptin are now starting to, you know, become disturbed from the calorie deficit. And if they are weighing themselves to sort of track their weight or their progress, if their weight is, you know, stalled, but they're eating the same amount, that can be a sign that their metabolism has kind of downgraded a little bit. Okay, cool. I was just curious what your take were. I agree with I agree with all of that. Um, should we continue the story, Bracken? Yeah, I think so. So you're at Cornell now. You've established that your passion is moving into this singular program, literally a singular program. You are the one. You've been chosen for that. <laughs> um, quick question there. 
once you're in, are you in? Or are there grounds for removal and replacement? Yeah, oh, certainly. So the way that it works is, you know, I was accepted, you obviously kind of sign paperwork showing that this is your intention. And then you have what's called your, um, your A exam. And this is where your committee basically brings you into a room and you present to them your proposal for your doctoral research. This is kind of what I want to study. This is the study protocol. And then they grill you on not just the study and the design, but then sort of your area of proposed expertise. And they kind of start to just drill down and ask you questions until you break. And it's not really something that you can study for because it's mostly critical thinking. You obviously want to prepare and you know feel like you're uh, knowledgeable in that area, but they're going to ask you questions about that, and then you know you wait outside. Basically, they talk about it and they decide is is this applicant you know prepared? Is this a, a reasonable proposal? You know, is this respectable? And then they can fail you. You cannot pass your A exam. Um, or if you do pass, then you move on with kind of the proposed studies. And then after, you know, several years later, after you've done the research, you write up your dissertation, then you have what's called a defense. And you basically defend your research. They again, ask you questions. Um, but it, at that point, it's more around your studies and, you know, about the certain outcomes, the results, the methodology that sort of thing. And then from there, they decide if you pass or if you fail. And there's about a 50% dropout rate from traditional doctoral programs. So it's not for everyone, that's for sure. And did you know immediately what you were going to defend? Or did you kind of discover it along the way? I definitely discovered it along the way. Um, a lot of it depends on kind of your advisor's area of expertise. And then you typically will do something related to that. Um, not exactly, because the thought is typically for a PhD program that you will eventually go and be a professor and do your own research. And so you don't want to be an exact replicate of your advisor. So it's some variation of their area. Um, and so it, it's a little bit on kind of what your advisor thinks, but then you also obviously have to be interested and passionate about it so that you have the drive to, to go through with it because it's a lot of work. But um, it's not like you just wake up one day and you're like, yep, this is what I'm doing. It, it kind of evolves over time. And what did yours evolve into? So mine... I, I got really interested in the time-restricted feeding um, because as I was getting into graduate school, like time-restricted eating, um, intermittent fasting, it was just starting to kind of pick up steam. So I was forecasting like, all right, a few years from now, this could be really big. I wanted to have something to kind of contribute to this. So I proposed this to my advisor, like, hey, what if we did some kind of, you know, time-restricted feeding studies? Um, and he's really interested in, you know, weight loss and body weight control. And so he thought that fit really well. And so that's how I started putting together my proposals. And so we did some uh, time restricted feeding studies, and then also some like blinded overfeeding studies, where we bring participants into the lab and manipulate their portion sizes, and they don't know how much they've been manipulated from their baseline. And so we kind of are looking to see how much more are they eating relative to their baseline? Um, you know, are they naturally going to 
achieve that baseline if we underfeed them? Are they going to ask for more or do they just finish their plate? So we were kind of playing around with some ideas looking at, you know, how we typically find our, our level of fullness and how does that contribute to our overall intake? And what'd you find? So that one was interesting because we didn't see exactly what we thought, but people tend to eat pretty consistently. Um, we eat mostly on volume and our fullness. We also have, you know, caloric receptors, right? Otherwise we could just drink a glass of water and we'd be full. So we have those energy sensors, but we tend to eat more based on volume too. And so people will eat relative to their same amount, regardless of, of what they're served. From an athletic perspective, then, in terms of feeling sated, would you notice a difference between giving someone a bar, for example, with extremely calorically dense versus a very spread out meal with not so dense, but larger volume? Would you find that someone wouldn't feel sated initially, but that you can kind of trick those sensors with volume itself? Yeah, in the short term, you can kind of trick them, if you will. Um, but in the long term, the body starts to sense that energy difference. And so it'll probably increase appetite a few days later. And we did a study with NASA looking at energy intake. Just casually drop that down there. It's really controlled, right? And so we think that our energy is super tightly regulated, but we what we found is the correlation is really four days later. And so I see this a lot with my athletes is, you know, they have a huge workout on Saturday. Sunday's not so bad, but then they're like, oh my gosh, Wednesday I was so hungry and it seems really random and out of the blue, but really it's just that the body takes several days to kind of catch up to that energy intake and try to balance out, you know, the intake and expenditure. So that's why I tell athletes that, you know, hunger isn't necessarily the most reliable um, for them. You know, I think intuitive eating is a really helpful practice for most people, but with athletes, they can't just rely on hunger because you're going to 99% of the time end up under fueling. That's really interesting. Kirk and I talk a lot that your workout you're doing is a 10 to 20 day fitness effect. Like a lot of times it's right around that 10 day mark, you will notice your fitness change, but we haven't ever thought about it, or at least I can't speak for Kirk. I have never thought about the caloric delay. That is very interesting. Yeah. So it, you really have to be looking at the, the long-term picture. And I think we're starting to see this trending with sort of that post-workout window. I think for so many years, there was this fixation on that post-workout window, thinking like you have you know 20 minutes or your workout is totally wasted if you don't eat within that time frame. And now we're starting to realize it's really your, you know, patterns over time and your cells need that, you know, energy and those nutrients around the clock. And it's not just so specific on that, you know, two hour block post-workout. Uh, I actually just want to, the next, I want to pivot right now is basically what I want to do. And I want to pivot because most of our listeners are endurance athletes, right? Um, and and so the topic of conversation comes up with nutrition and obviously endurance performance, and there's a lot of layers to that. And then obviously the part that you've touched on is, and I really want to sink our teeth into this as well, is women's specific needs compared to men. Um, and we haven't had anybody on, and ourselves included, I can't speak with confidence on that manner. So the first thing I want to do is just dive into like endurance athletes in general. It sounds like you work with quite a few of them. Um, and this topic keeps coming up and recently with some of my athletes and it's just been coming up. So I want to start with a specific topic. Um, and that is 
I actually do believe, you know, let's say the athlete, I have a healthy relationship with food, but it's been off season and COVID. And here I'm a little pudgier than I really should be for my top athletic performance. I'm still training. I have races on the horizon, but I'm not where I know I probably should be. Let's talk from a completely healthful relationship with food standpoint. What do you do with, what do you do with that athlete? How do you manage that? I should probably lean out a little bit to perform my best. That's again, from a healthy point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So assuming they have kind of this healthy approach towards food and, yes. and mindset, um, I would say first is, you know, go after the low hanging fruit. So take a big picture at, you know, what's going on. What are their eating habits? What are they eating and drinking throughout the day? What's their training load? Like, you know, how many hours are they training? When are they training? And, you know, are there any kind of easy points, easy fixes that we can go after, to make changes you know if they've been getting you know food delivered five nights a week that's a really easy point to start with you know how can we get some nutritious healthy meals that require little to no cooking that aren't takeout um you know and so are there some simple fixes and then from there you can kind of take it a step further okay now looking at meal distribution. How many meals a day are you eating? Are you snacking? When are these relative to your workouts? And so you can kind of take it step by step until you get to sort of the level that they either want to be at with, you know, level of detail or that they need to be at with whatever level of competition they're going for. You know, if there's someone who's just wanting to leisurely kind of train for a 5k, then that's very different than someone who's trying to podium, you know, for a regionals race. So, you know, you have to take it into the context. And I would say not diving in head first. That's where I see a lot of people, you know, kind of go awry is they try to do too much too fast. And so what I do with my athletes is trying to work them through step by step. And so I would rather meet with them on a weekly basis and we cover one topic at a time. So like, Hey, this week, we're just focusing on breakfast. We're going to nail down, you know, solid ideas for breakfast. These are the nutrients we're going for. You know, next week we're talking about hydration next week. We're talking about, you know, pre pre-workout nutrition. And so taking it step by step instead of just trying to overhaul everything at once, because typically when you try to do everything, nothing really sticks. So, so step one, really like, I mean, keeping it simple, I completely agree with that would be like low hanging fruit. What is glaringly obvious? Do you need your glass and a half of wine every night? For example, do you need cutting out like the fringe things that, you know, can add up the conversation that just, again, this is with literally like a dozen of my athletes right now and myself included, I'm running a little heavy for an endurance athlete, um, would be like, if I just lost five pounds, I'd be that much like the five pound conversation, the five pound conversation that all starts with the same principles that you just kind of outlined. Correct. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Um, so when it comes to this, then, you know, again, I'll refer back to Rich Ryan, who is kind of a nutrition nerd and, and he likes to really science it out in the sense where he likes to figure out his output versus input and calculated caloric range based on his needs and output and all of that. Um, and it works for some people. And I think for some people, it absolutely does not. What, yeah. what is your experience with, with calorie, calorie counting, in versus out, all of that? Is it splitting hairs or is it actually beneficial? Again, considering you have a, assuming you have a healthy relationship with food. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. I think it works well for some and not for others. I have athletes who are doing 
you know, both. I have some athletes who are tracking macronutrients, they're weighing their food, they're measuring things out. I have other athletes who take a more generalized approach and I've seen both be very successful. So it depends, I think, on their preferences and what's realistic for them. So when I work with the athletes, I will put together like a customized algorithm to calculate their macronutrients. And so I put a lot of time and effort into doing this based on a lot of variables that we talk about in that initial session. Um, and then if an athlete wants those, you know, grams of macronutrients, I'm happy to give that to them because I do have some, you know, pros, semi pros, or just really elite athletes who are very detail oriented and they do well with that information. And so I've seen that be, you know, successful because it gives them some really nice targets to shoot for and they find comfort in those numbers. And it doesn't seem to be a problem in terms of their relationship with food. Um, and it kind of helps them get to where they need to be. I've also seen some athletes who they're like, I don't want to take the time to weigh and measure things, or they don't think it's necessarily helpful for them from a psychological perspective. Or if they have a family, that can be a little awkward if they're trying to, you know, weigh their salad dressing at the family dinner table. So if that's the case, then what I do is I kind of translate those grams into portion sizes that are a little more general for them so that they can be estimating based on like their hand sizes. So I'll say like, hey, do like one thumb worth of peanut butter. And so that way they're not getting out the scale or the tablespoon measurement to be, you know, measuring their food. But that way it still gets them pretty darn close to whatever that actual gram target is. And it's a lot more reasonable for them in terms of their lifestyle or their preferences. And so for some of those people, that is really helpful in like long-term sustainability. So I'd rather see someone stick with guidelines that are a little more general and it's, you know, not a problem for them than try to measure things for three days and be like, I can't do this. This is too much work. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And it seems like you're, you're going with the non-stressed approach, which if you err, it doesn't add stress to your life. It's like, okay, I swerved back right in. Yeah. And you know, the body's pretty good at balancing things out, um, over time. And even like nutrition labels or the tracking apps, you know, I tell people don't lose too much sleep over it. They can be, I think up to 20% off without, <laughs> without any legal repercussions. So, you know, again, it's, I, I tell them, you know, this is a, a general goal to shoot for, but you know, you're not going to have a night and day difference if you're five grams over or 10 grams over. It's, it's a general target that we're shooting for. Can you imagine another industry where you get 20% leeway? Oh my gosh. That, no. <laughs> like this medication is effective plus or minus 20%. Yeah. Can you imagine? Or like, well, yeah, the, you know, Google Maps, well, 20% of the time. <laughs> so I think you have to look at sort of the long term picture. And now if you have a serious athlete who they're like, hey, I've got two weeks until my next race, I really have to be dialed in here. Then I think the more detailed approach is going to be your best bet, assuming, you know, that they're capable of managing that. But again, you have to think, you know, if you're, they're doing this for months on end, what's going to be sustainable for them? Uh, the side question to that is if you have to, let's just say you have your athlete that is not going to negotiate on that. I need my five pound loss before my race. Like I'm doing it with or without you. What's the latest you would uh, tell an athlete that it's smart to start? 
Oof. Uh, with the five pounds. So typically the earlier they can get to their kind of competition mm -hmm. weight, the better. The reason being, we want to make sure that we're fueling those workouts to get those training adaptations to adequately recover and to really maximize that performance. And you're not going to be getting the same training adaptations if you're working out in a deficit relative to a maintenance. So a big mistake I see is people show up to their season relatively, you know, heavier than the, what they would like to be. And they're like, well, I'll lean out over the season. Yes, that is true. We've seen a lot of athletes do that, but ideally you kind of get the weight you know, to a relative area where you're happy with it and then be training and adequately fueling during that training season and not having to cut weight while you're trying to train because you kind of got one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat at that point. You're looking at conflicting cell signaling pathways and trying to get the best of both worlds. And so they end up spinning their wheels. It's like, you know, their training isn't going all that well, but they're also not really losing a lot of weight. And so they end up just feeling kind of frustrated. That makes sense. As far as endurance athletes and nutrition go, I'm going to give you like a very vague and general question. I'm sorry. It's not even fair to do that as a podcast host, but what do you see as some of like the general common or overlooked mistakes that maybe an endurance athlete or misconceptions, I guess I'm going to kind of let you lead this one that us as endurance athletes make mistakes or misconceptions as far as fueling pre post during anything, anything that jumps out to you. Yeah. I would say the, the biggest misconception is that, Leaner is better, you know, and people take this to the extreme and they think, well, if I'm just leaner, I'll be faster. And so I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls is putting that performance on the back burner for the sake of aesthetics or a weight. And they kind of lose sight in as to what's important. I'm just like, well, this isn't a beauty contest. This isn't a fitness competition. You know, this is a race or, you know, some sort of, you know, event that is going to reward you for your performance and not for your aesthetics or for your weight. So that's probably the biggest thing that I see. Um, fad diets is probably another, you know, easy one to do. And, you know, the marketing is really appealing. We see all these ads online or detoxes or whatever. And so we kind of, you know, diet hop to different, different diets, thinking that it's always going to be the next one that's going to be the winning silver bullet um, instead of taking more of a steady approach. Another one that you mentioned earlier, Kirk, is just trying to cut too much weight too fast. And that usually backfires pretty hard. And so really taking more of a slow, sustainable approach to trying to get to that race weight instead of trying to drop weight too quickly is another, another big thing. And also I would say unnecessarily cutting out certain foods. Sometimes I see athletes there and they have good intentions. They're trying to sort of do what they think is best, but in that sense, it actually is causing them more stress psychologically. And so that I can start messing with cortisol. And in general, they just don't feel as well than if they were a little more relaxed with their approach. Um, so those are some of the kind of big ones that I see. Um, and another one too is, um, probably just generally not eating enough. Most endurance athletes are under fueled um, or at least undernourished, I'll say, um, in terms of what they need in order to optimally recover, especially in women. Women tend to undereat um, relative to their expenditure. And I think part of that is the cultural um, you know, situation, but not eating enough to get those training adaptations. And the big fear is that, well, if I eat more, I'm just going to gain a bunch of weight. And if you ask any athlete who's kind of 
gotten to the other side of that, they're like, you don't, you know, and I have athletes who kind of say that all the time. They're like, I was freaked out when I saw your recommendations. Like, this is so much food. I'm going to gain a bunch of weight. But what happens is that energy goes to repairing their tissue and fueling their performance and they're not storing it as body fat. And so it takes a little bit of, uh, of trust and um, to move forward with eating more, but you start to see the benefits and feel better too. And that I think is sort of positive reinforcement for them. Yeah. I, I've heard all of those. Haven't you back in? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Anna, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge across the board, but that's not necessarily what your passion is today. What are you doing today here and now as a professional? Yeah, so now I have a private practice where I work with athletes uh, for their nutrition, but then I'm also the chief research officer of Athlete Blood Test, which mm -hmm. is just what it sounds like. It is a blood testing company specifically for athletes. And so that's where I get to really geek out on the the science aspect and dive into the the research and trying to kind of move the field forward with athletes, especially with women, because, you know, as women, we are under studied in exercise science. And so I want to try to help change that. And so we have some initiatives that we're trying to move the field forward. So I really get to kind of get the best of both worlds with the science and the research component, but I'm not tied down to a university um, or teaching. And I, so that way I still have time uh, to work with clients individually so I can take a look at their blood work and then say like, all right, here's how we're going to make some changes to your you know, nutrition based on what we're seeing on, in blood levels. Now, if I were leading a research department, I think I would understand why most studies target men. It's because we're simpler. Oh, absolutely. Like, what are you going to do? Ensure that every woman is on or off cycle at the same time when you start a, a project? Like, it, it would be such a complex planning just to make sure that women are synced up to be able to get the same sterile environment as men that, yeah, I could understand why I might lean towards not including a female study because it would be a hassle. Oh, absolutely. It makes so much sense. And if you look at what goes into doing a research study, um, they're incredibly energy intensive. You need a lot of staff to run a study. It's not just like a one person deal. So you need a lot of different staff to help with that. Um, men are, yeah, you guys are simple. You don't really have phases. Your testosterone is going to fluctuate throughout the day, but you're pretty consistent day to day. And so it's a lot easier and a lot more controlled to study men. So I certainly understand why men are more studied. And also, you know, there are just more men in sports in general. That's starting to change more, right? After the Title IX was passed, we have an increase in women in sports, and that continues to be the case. So that's exciting. But generally speaking, there are still more male athletes. And so if you look at what it would take to study women, yeah, you have a lot of different variables. And now a study that could have taken a month is now going to take eight months because you have different phases, different cycles. You need so many participants in each arm of the study and it gets very complicated. So it's understandable, but I don't think it's necessarily excusable. And so finding ways to to change that now that we kind of have an understanding of what it needs um, from a research perspective to move forward with it, I think is important to, you know, to really pursue. Well, in any field bubbles up, like change bubbles from the bottom. 
like you can't get lead scientists until you have researchers who are indoctrinated. Like everything bubbles up from the bottom. And so Title IX started the advance of women's athletics, which would then lead to more women in sport, which would lead to more women coming back in coaching and more women wanting to pursue science-based studies. So it's always going to be a decade or so behind the advancement until you get the actionable people in place at the right spot. So it seems like you're in a spot now to take action, but you've gone straight to the blood rather than, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've said, forget trying to do all these crazy focus groups. I'm going to go straight to the blood so I can just see everything right away rather than pour in research into very difficult operations. Yeah. And you know, there are different studies have their place. And so we certainly need a variety of studies, everything from cell studies to, you know, proof of principle in mice and then human studies. But I think working with blood is really helpful because, you know, it's a relatively easy specimen to work with. Um, and it, your blood doesn't lie. You know, it's, it's hard to control people. But when you look at their blood, you get a pretty good sense of what's going on inside the body. And that's essentially what is going to drive those, you know, behaviors and that performance. So if we can really dive into the blood and take a look at what's going on, that's going to help us, you know, take a step back and look at, okay, well, how are they feeling? So when we take their blood, we can also see you know, what's going on with their, you know, overall wellness, because we get also give them a questionnaire. So we take a look at how are they sleeping? Where are they in their cycle? You know, how is your training? What's your volume like? Um, are you on certain medications? So you can start to get a sense of how these pieces are fitting together. So we can get a better picture of, you know, how do we figure out how to get women in, you know, specifically, but athletes in general, how do we get them to feel their best? And what does that look like for an athlete? because that's different than the general population. So what have you found then? I mean, th that's a giant question, but what has changed in your practice the way that you de deal with your female clients since you dove into the blood game? So I've really started working with female athletes on modulating their nutrition and training around their menstrual cycle or whatever form of birth control they're using if they're not cycling or if they're postmenopausal. You know, before it was kind of like, oh, you're a woman. Okay, here are your recommendations. And now it's like your physiology is different in different times of the month. And so if we just kind of sweep that under the rug, we are not going to get our best results in any way, shape or form. And so really honoring that physiology and working with it instead of against it. So now we're changing micronutrients. So I will give my athletes specific foods to focus on, you know, or certain nutrients, um, different times of the month. So like, Hey, this week, we're really going to focus on, you know, this vitamin E because that's really important to get in this week, next week, you know, we're going to focus more on the, the iron and the sodium. And, and so changing some of these small nuances can really make a difference, especially over time, month to month in their performance and how they're feeling, because now their physiology is supported with their, you know, their nutrition and their training protocol, rather than just trying to like white knuckle their way through some sort of training or nutrition, if it's not supporting their physiology. That's one of those things that I hear. And I think, well, yeah, of course but never would think of it myself. With a female client, I would change volume based on how you're feeling throughout your month and would never think to address the nutritional side adequately. And it'd mostly be guesswork on the volume, whereas you can point to actionable evidence. Yeah, and it's helpful if they have blood work. I mean, I have clients who don't 
you know, have their blood work done. And that's okay, because we can still make a lot of positive changes. But it's especially helpful if they do have blood work, because now I can see exactly, here's where your vitamin D is. So we're going to implement these foods, or, you know, you tend to be high in estrogen, here's how we're going to work with that, instead of just trying to guess with general recommendations. What are some of the fluctuations that you see in a woman's blood, let's say over a month or two time span that you might not see in a man's? So there are different in macronutrients and micronutrients. So we see uh, changes and fluctuations in things like iron, vitamin E, magnesium, potassium, zinc, um, sodium, those are all going to change throughout the cycle. And then in terms of macronutrients, so sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, just to clarify. So that means like you would see more fluctuation in all of those and potentially more fluctuation in all of those in women where men may just be more steady across the board if you tested them every few weeks and you'll actually see within a cycle, those numbers go up and down. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then with macronutrients, women tend to burn more carbohydrate, especially during exercise during that first half of their cycle. So that follicular phase, um, and they are going to burn more fat during that second half of the phase. So during the luteal phase. And so you see an increase in triglycerides and free fatty acids. If you're taking a blood draw later on versus, um, earlier in, in their cycle. And also insulin sensitivity decreases during the luteal phase. And so women aren't as carb sensitive. And so if they're trying to carb load later in their cycle, it's typically not as effective because they're not able to store that carbohydrate as glycogen as readily than at earlier times in their cycle. That's fascinating to me. I didn't know any of this and I feel pretty well studied. Um, I'm glad you're on. So so what do you do with that then? Like, I'm sure it's not all across the board, but these seem like pretty steadfast things that happen, like knowing these things and then confirming via blood or however you do, like, what do you, what do you do with that? Like, I can't imagine how many women are listening right now being like, it's fucking race morning and I got my period or they know it's coming. Like, what do you, what do you do with it? Super curious. Yeah. So I, I try to work with women um, as, as much as we can in terms of really giving them certain foods to focus on to try to support these nutrient fluctuations. Mm -hmm. um, and with like the carbs and, and fats, I will change and protein too. So women are more catabolic um, in that latter half of the cycle. And so that's a time where we would want to bump up protein to try to offset some of that catabolism. It also helps with satiety. So really looking at their cycle, I, I break it up into the follicular and luteal. Sometimes you'll see it broken down into four phases. Um, and so that's a little more detail oriented. And for some athletes, that's, as, you know, important if they're, you know, pro semi pro or elite, but if you're talking about more like a general, you know, recreational athlete, then if you're just doing the two phases, that's usually a really good place to start. So changing kind of general food patterns, um, and starting to implement some of these changes. So, Hey, we're going to bump up your fats during the luteal phase. That's going to help with that insulin sensitivity. It's going to help with that satiety. Um, it's also going to help fuel that lower intensity, longer, longer runs that you have versus trying to, you know, do heavy deadlifts that, that second half of your cycle or, you know, high intensity work that typically doesn't go very well. So when you're saying like, um, sorry, Bracken, when you're saying like, oh, like your body may not be able to store glycogen as well at, in this phase, or you're more responsive to eating fats in this phase, um, is that all due to hormonal 
triggers in the body is is telling is causing that yes so these are all due to hormonal fluctuations and that's why we see them in women and not in men is because men have estrogen and progesterone but it's just about you know one tenth of what women have with testosterone right so women we have you know one tenth to one seventeenth the amount of a man so it's like everyone has all of the the hormones it's just what's dominant and what's relative to, to the sex. With this, obviously the the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, daily practice is determined by this. Do you go so serious as to encourage your clients to schedule races around predicted cycles? Or do you just say, this is the reality, this is the hand you're dealt with, here's how we're going to make the best of it? If they have the option of choosing when they race, I encourage them to race at a certain time because physiologically, that's going to be advantageous. Very few athletes have that luxury of choosing when they race or compete. And so I reinforced that world records have been set in every phase of the menstrual cycle. So I don't want them to think that like they're doomed if it's not in this ideal window. Um, Because sports psychology comes into play here. If an athlete goes into an event thinking that they're screwed, then things usually don't go very well. So encouraging them to, if they can schedule it at certain times, but if not, it's not a big deal. And we will do everything in our power to get them their best performance that they can get. Without giving away everything that people pay you for deservedly, what are some of those low hanging fruits that you can do? Like you travel, you wake up, it's here. I also have to race, what am I doing? So actually the week of the period is usually pretty good from a physiological perspective. Some women have like cramping or some discomfort, kind of those first few If my wife gets her period in the morning, that is her best run of the month. Yeah. So I've seen some women too where they're, so for weightlifting, um, they'll have crappy lifts in the morning. They'll get their period. And then in the afternoon, they'll PR. It's like the the switch flips. It's crazy for some women. Other women don't see as big a difference. So it's very um, dependent on the person. But um, typically it's that week before you get your period. I like to call it shark week. Um, (laughs) So I'm sure women listening to this can relate. So that's usually the week where you just don't feel very good. Your energy is typically lower. Um, hunger goes through the roof and your coordination is not quite as good. Motivation can be really low. You just kind of don't really feel like doing much at all. Um, there can be some water retention or some swelling as estrogen and progesterone start to fall, that's when we typically get a little more puffy. And so um, what I'll advise my athletes is the week before they get their period, that's the best time to do like a recovery week. So, or if they're like, I can't take a whole week for recovery, then just do some lower intensity work, um, work on mobility, work on flexibility, stretching technique, um, but lay off of those really high intense workouts if that's possible. If I recall correct, and maybe I'm exact opposite, but you said they switch more to a fat utilization stage there, less of carbohydrate burning. And so performance wise, you must just be down for anything high intensity in the second half of your stage. Yep. So if, um, if they can, then doing those lower intensity kind of longer workouts are going to be better um, because you're not going to be relying on that glycogen as much. 
if they do have to do some sort of high intensity work that time, then you would want to increase those intra workout carbs because the body's going to be relying on that blood glucose for performance hmm. instead of drawing from the muscle glycogen. I may learn more today, Kirk. I may better myself as a coach more today <laughs> than any episode we've done yet. This is, this is fascinating. I'm genuinely very interested. Why is it that, why are you hungry the week of, like the week leading up to your period? Because I mean, I noticed like, for example, my girlfriend, Jess, that week hits her hard and she knows it. And then finally she gets her period and she's like, thank God I'm not a monster anymore. Right. And she's, you can't keep a gummy bear in the house that week, for example. It's just like, like what physiologically is happening? Like are those hormonal triggers or those, what is that? Yeah. So there's a million dollar question. Um, No, it's a a good question though, because I was curious about that myself. I'm like, what is going on? Um, So what happens is there's a few things. The first is that we're not as insulin sensitive. And so you might notice um, that for the women who are listening, you guys won't notice, but um, for women, you might notice that you eat maybe kind of your quote unquote normal amount, but you don't feel satiated. So you might physically feel full, but you're not getting that signaling in the brain that, oh yeah, I'm satisfied and full. Um, And so that's kind of a weird thing to experience, but it's annoying because you're like, I'm full, but I'm still hungry. Um, And so part of that is because we're not as insulin sensitive. And so we're not getting that signaling for our brain that, hey, we've had enough, you know, we're full. The other thing is that um, estrogen is going to have a similar signaling pathway in the brain as leptin. And leptin is the hormone that tells your brain that it's full. So when you eat, um, there your stomach is going to send a signal of leptin from your stomach up to your brain that says, "Hey, I've had food. I'm I'm full. I've had enough." And then that hunger decreases. And so during that week right before your period, estrogen levels are starting to decrease, and so we're starting to see a decrease in that signaling pathway of leptin. So we're not getting those full signals. So that's why we tend to feel hungry. And it's weird. It's not like, "Oh yeah, I'm kind of hungry." It's like I need to eat now or I might start crying. Like it's like a real <laughs> hunger. It's not just like, yeah, I could eat. So it can be a little frustrating, um, but I, it's it's something that you just comes with the territory, I guess. But there are some supplements that you can take to kind of help with some of these symptoms during PMS week, um, not just with the hunger, that's one thing, but some of the other symptoms too. So you're never going to completely you know, escape them, but there are some things you can do to help kind of minimize some of these swings and fluctuations and symptoms. Well, it has to be like a little bit difficult if your appetite is up, but your energy is down and you shouldn't be training that hard that week yet. You've just ate way too many whatevers. I'm sure it's a difficult balance. I, um, I want to ask something on behalf of, uh, a couple of athletes of mine. Um, a couple of female athletes who have tried my best with, and I feel like I don't know enough. And that is the spotty pyramid or pyramid, spotty period athlete. Um, ones who maybe run lean. I do believe that these athletes have a very healthy relationship with food and training um, from my understanding, yet they're all over the map or they're not having their period. And I have two that are not right now. And it's a struggle and they they want to have their period, period and they want to have children and they want all these things. And yet they're conflicted between endurance training and do I, should I even stop completely? How do I approach this? I know that's a very layered question, but I have a couple in particular that I know are very curious about that. And we've worked with increasing their caloric intake to try to up their body fat percentage and maybe overfuel a little bit. Um, but I really don't know. Anna, what do you say to those athletes? 
Yeah. And so this is a lot more common than people might think with, you know, regular cycles and athletes. And the female body is a lot more sensitive to energy balance than the male body is. And this is for evolutionary reasons, right? If there's a famine, we should not be in a place where we can reproduce because there isn't enough energy for our own bodies, much less to support a pregnancy. So this is why if you see in the research, you'll, you'll look at these studies where they'll slightly underfeed or have exercise and you see a bigger decrease in leptin for the females and it has a bigger increase in their hunger um, relative to the men, even though it's going to be an identical proportional decrease in energy. So if someone is having irregular menstrual cycles, we definitely want to get that figured out because having a regular healthy menstrual cycle is going to get you your best results. Um, it's not healthy not to have a natural healthy cycle, assuming that they're not on some sort of like you know, hormonal contraception. Um, and so there's a really good book. It's called No Period Now What um, by Nicola Rinaldi. And she's a PhD. And she talks about some strategies in there that can be helpful. Um, but basically what that's saying is that there's some sort of issue with hormones that they're not getting the regular increase and decrease in estrogen, progesterone, um, LH and FSH with their bodies. So that could be a combination of increasing energy, decreasing intense exercise, because that can be a big role. Um, even a very small amount of intense exercise can be incredibly stressful for the female body. You know, people think, well, I only do like two hit sessions a week. And it's like, that can be enough. There's some research showing that just three hours of exercise a week is enough to throw off the menstrual cycle. And I was like, a week? I have athletes doing more than that per day. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing how sensitive some of our energy systems are. And so it might be advantageous, especially if they want to have children in the future, but even if they don't just for their own health to take a recovery period. And this could be, you know, three months, six months, just take a season off to really regain that health, you know, re-nourish your body. Because once you start cycling normally again, then it's a little bit easier to start training and um, kind of competing a little bit more once you get back into that cycle, but it's regaining those natural cycle and that rhythm that can be more sensitive and a little more difficult. So long story short, increasing calories, decreasing training stress, and also psychological stress. You can mentally stress yourself out of a cycle, even if you have enough energy, but usually it's a combination of the under fueling and kind of under recover and overtraining. Do you, do you see that one leads the way like the overtraining and like, I'm thinking now as a coach, like, you know, they were having problems with menstruation before we started working together. But now I'm thinking, dang, I did, I did really prescribe some hard workouts. They were in a big training block. I wasn't helping. Do, do you see that like moving your body leads the way or food leads the way or is there, are they equal parts? So it, it's funny, like there's research supporting both. Some research shows that, um, exercise is more harmful on, you know, the, the natural cycle and others are showing that your body is more sensitive to food, really looking at decreasing energy and or energy expenditure. So backing off on those workouts, especially the intense workouts and increasing, um, energy intake. So eating more, and this can be mentally really uncomfortable for athletes, especially those that are competing and, you know, in that sports culture where being lean is very, 
you know, appealing, but you have to really think about what are the long-term repercussions and what are my long-term goals. And so I think it's definitely worth taking a few months to step back and really regain that health before moving forward. Because, you know, we want to be running and killing it into our 80s and not be suffering from osteoporosis when we're 50 years old. And I've heard of women who, you know, who have osteoporosis, they'll get stress fractures from like carrying groceries or just walking. You know, it doesn't take a lot because their bones are so fragile. And that's what happens if you have low energy availability. So um, if anyone is curious, I would recommend that book, No Period, Now What? It's specifically for athletes um, and it addresses, you know, how much should I be training? How much should I be eating? And it's really well done. The teacher in me loves the irony of that, the grammatical irony of that title. <laughs> yes, it, uh, it's a good book. It's, it's long. I thought it was going to be a short book, but that thing is like 500 pages long. Wow. So you're saying, so you're recommending like if somebody hasn't men ha had a menstrual cycle in years and years, like sometimes like a large reset of months where you like just live your life and eat food and stop training and just let your body get back to homeostasis has seemed to help a number of women. Yeah, a lot. It's really encouraging. I was a little bit doubtful. And then I saw the research and I was like, mm, okay, yeah, maybe this is really, really helpful. Um, and so the research does support it. And if you do the work, meaning you back off training, you eat more, your body really is resilient and it can restart and get that health back. And it is so important because after a certain age, you cannot increase your bone density you can only maintain what you have. And so it's a one way street. So if you go down quite a bit, you know, you're really setting yourself up for some challenges later on down the road. And it might seem like, oh, well, that's years away. But again, um, you don't want to take that risk. Anna, this will not be a shock to you, but athletes will immediately ask the same question because they're all, you know, inherently rule pushers. What can I do? What is the, what's the most I can get away with and still be considered a reset? Because you know that if you tell a competitive athlete you have to take three to six months off, they're going to say, okay, can I lift during this? Can I spin instead of run? Like, what is that? Or is it just you have to say no? For the rest of your life, that giant scope, three to six months is going to be your investment. So it's different for everyone. It's pretty a wide range relative to person to person, what they can handle in terms of how sensitive they are. Some women can still do, you know, light workouts and be okay. Others have to totally stop for that period um, to regain their cycles and then they can slowly increase. But the recommendation and what the research shows is that if you totally back off and just nothing more than like walking, and I don't mean like at an incline of 12% for an hour, like, you know, militaristic march, like, yeah, but I was walking, um, you know, like a leisurely walk, not a heart rate over 100 beats per minute, um, you know, can be helpful psychologically, but, you know, just keeping them moving too is helpful. Um, but for some women, it really is nothing more than like walking and yoga. And the rule or general of thumb and recommendation is that you want to kind of go all in, meaning cut out the workouts, increase your calories to about 2,500 um, per day, which is a lot more than what some are doing. And get at least three cycles. If you have three periods, now we can start to increase that training, you know, 
and start doing more kind of intuitive eating um, instead of just pushing those calories and see how your body responds. So you don't go, I got it, I'm back. No, you don't want to go like, oh, I got it. You know, now I'm going to, you know, $15 a week. Uh, Mm -hmm. You would want to kind of phase into that to make sure that it's not too much on the body because it could be that your body can handle 10 hours of training a week, but it's going to take time to get there. You know, you don't want to go from zero to 10. Um, That's really stressful on the body. But if you gradually increase training um, over time, then the body can handle those smaller adaptations and it's not so stressful. And so you don't lose your cycle. So it's really about kind of taking those gradual steps instead of drastically changing. And does that include cutting out like even low rep, high weight lifting? Um, I would think you you could probably do a little bit of like low rep resistance training. Um, but there are some women who have, who they tried that they're like, Oh, I'm just gonna, you know, do some light resistance. And that wasn't enough. They cut it out and then Mm -hmm. they were able to get their cycle back. So again, everyone's different. So I would say, don't waste your time trying to just like, Oh, I'll reduce it a little bit because you're just going to extend that time. Whereas if you can kind of go all in and then, um, you know, slowly, gradually add things back in, you'll spend more time in that training zone that you want to be instead of trying to fiddle around with trying to find that threshold that your body uniquely responds to. Um, we're, we're two men that have never had our periods in our life. So uh, I've asked most of the questions that I know to ask, or I wanted to ask. And I have a feeling there's some that we're, we aren't even smart enough to ask. What are we not asking? Is there anything that we haven't addressed uh, as far as like uh, that, that might jump out to you that's worth talking about, I guess, in regards to the female athlete administration and performance? Yeah, I mean, I think you guys have asked great questions, but I would say one of the big things that I want to kind of hammer home is that you want to have your period if you're not on, you know, birth control pills or an IUD or something like that. Um, you know, when I was going through like middle school and learning about getting your period and all of that, it wasn't talked about so much. And it's like, oh, well, if you lose your period, then it just means you're training too hard. And now we're starting to realize and understand that that is a a red flag, that that's not a badge of honor, but really that's your body shutting down. And so try to prioritize your health in, you know, in the long run by taking a few months off to recover and regain that cycle and that health, because it will help you be a better athlete in the long run. So, um, so just, you know, honoring that health and, um, not seeing it as a trivial thing, if it does go missing or start to become pretty irregular and also that they're not alone. I see a lot of athletes who, who deal with this. And so there are some support groups online. Um, if athletes want to reach out, I can, you know, kind of direct them, but also the book that I mentioned, um, you know, that author has a group as well. So there are plenty of like groups that they can join online and kind of commiserate together. um, So they don't have to feel alone because it can be very isolating. So trying to find a group that you can kind of band with is really helpful. You mentioned before that some of the blood work depends on whether you are on birth control or not. Are you just in the clear? You don't have to worry about the, the hormone level changes with birth control, or is that just a different set of problems to work through? 
or challenges, not problems. Yeah. So birth control pills definitely change things. So when you're on birth control pills, it's going to artificially change your hormone levels. And so if we take a look at your blood work and you are on birth control, it's not going to look the same as what if you were naturally cycling. And so the estrogen level that we see in the blood work, that's not going to be your natural estrogen. It's going to be an artifact of the birth control pills. So if you are on birth control pills, you are not getting a period, which was super confusing because women are like, and myself included, I was like, oh no, I definitely bleed every month. And it's like, that's actually withdrawal bleed. And it's not the same thing as getting your period. And so you you won't have that indicator of, did my menstrual cycle go missing? Um, it, I didn't get my period this week because you're on the birth control pills. So you, you know, you naturally kind of have that indicator, that red flag that can go off if you're naturally cycling and now you're not. But if you're on birth control pills, you could be in an energy deficit, you know, and be kind of in trouble, so to speak. But we don't see the same uh, repercussions because you're not you're going to get that withdrawal bleed regardless of the healthy reproductive system. I did not know that. I didn't know that. I, I was so I used to be on birth control pills. Um, I'm not anymore. But um, I heard they're like, yeah, you don't get your period if you're on birth control. I'm like, uh, no, I I definitely do. And I looked into it and it's no, it's a withdrawal bleed. And so it's not technically getting your period. Um, and I, I have, I have two more questions and I think they're both going to be shorter ones. And I see we're almost approaching the two hour mark. Um, so, uh, the first one, and this is off the woman's topic, but I have a couple of women stuck in this position right now. Um, so I think it's, but it's still universal. And that is your recommendation for an athlete who, has reached a weight loss plateau and know they need to lose more from even like a health standpoint. Um, do you have any recommendations as far as like how to approach that? If you've been stuck for a, like a substantially long period of time and know that there's still health benefits and performance benefits to be gained from maybe breaking through that plateau, like what is your school of thought there? How to approach that? Um, so for women specifically, it's tough. Um, you can't really compare weight unless it's month to month because our weight is going to change week to week based on how much water we're retaining, which changes literally every single week, um, depending on the phase of the cycle. But let's say that they have consistently plateaued for over six to eight weeks and you've seen no change, then I would say it's probably a good time to take a look at their training volume, take a look at their intake and something's got to change, whether that's increasing their intake or sorry, increasing their um, workouts slightly or decreasing their intake slightly. Um, because what that's telling you is that their current energy balance is stable. So they're consuming what they are burning more or less, assuming that they're not, uh, recomping, right? They're not building muscle and losing fat at the same time, which can happen for some people who are new to like weightlifting. But for most people, it's that they're just, they're weight stable. So their energy intake matches their expenditure. So either they need to expend more or consume slightly less. So taking a look at what's going to be realistic for them. And usually it's a combination of both. So I'd rather see someone take out maybe 200 calories and then burn 200 more than take out 400 or burn 400 more. So it, it, you have to take a look at the, the athlete though and say like, are they maxed out on their, you know, their training volume or are they at like really low calories? 
What about if like um, metabolic sabotage in the past is part of a suspicion to the equation? That's tough because that's usually kind of what happens is they're in a deficit and now their body's sort of caught mm. up to that, if you will. And so they're not going to be in as large of a deficit. So weight loss either slows or stops altogether. And so if that's the case, you can bring them up to maintenance and try sort of a maintenance phase to try to minimize cortisol um, and sort of resensitize them and get their leptin levels back up to help if hunger has been a big issue, which it probably is if they're stalled out. Um, mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then, you know, again, probably trying to find a, a combination of um, increasing expenditure slightly, but I would probably try a maintenance phase if that's feasible. If you're like, no, they've got a race in two weeks, we can't, we can't afford two weeks of maintenance, then, then I would say that's, you're probably going to have to drop, um, you know, drop their calories after a certain period to, okay. to get that weight loss, um, moving. And just for reference, people listening, I'm not talking about nitpicking like ounces or a few pounds. I'm talking about people who've come to me that wanted to and needed to lose significant weight and have plateaued. I'm not trying to push towards like something unhealthy. I just want to clarify that with where I'm coming from with that question. So thank you. Uh, Anna, tomorrow morning, I'm doing my first test with the athlete blood test. I'm going in for my first blood withdrawal. Nice. I'm excited to do that. I haven't had blood testing done since 2015 or 2016. I was living at altitude at the time, and it was with a company that is not, I would say, as athletically driven as the athlete blood test. So I'm excited to go in there. A uh, couple part question to this, but A, what do I need to expect and look for from something like this for how I'm going to be able to improve my my best practice for fueling as an athlete? So it's really nice because it's a lot more convenient than going to your doctor. So, you know, you just have to show up at the lab. You don't have to pay at the lab or anything, scheduling appointments and all of that like you do at the doctor's office. So you walk in, they'll take your blood. It's really quick. Um, and then, you know, typically a weekish, um, 10 days, maybe two weeks, depending on how backed up the, the lab is, um, we'll get your blood work in and then it'll be run through an algorithm to look at, you know, what your levels are, compare that to the general population, compare that to your athlete specific population, which is kind of the secret and special sauce for athlete blood test. And then we have an expert go through each and every blood test and take a look at your overall results. Um, do we see patterns, you know, what's standing out and then comment on those and give you specific recommendations. So let's say, for example, you're low in vitamin D. We're not just going to say, Hey, Bracken, take a vitamin D supplement. Like that's not helpful. We will tell you specifically take this many IU for this long and then reduce to this amount for this long. Um, well, your algorithm doesn't drive your recommendations. It's step one in deriving that. Exactly. And most blood test companies, they just do an algorithm because it's very uh, scalable. But That's what happened with my previous one. And that's why I haven't retested in five years because it felt non-personal. And they're not, if we're being honest. Like, it's just run through an algorithm. And so because at Athlete Blood Test, we only 
test athletes and we're very driven by your specific sport, your training volume and other factors. It's very customized and personalized to you. So when you get your report, it's going to sound like someone is writing to you and that's because they are. It's meant for you. And someone has been working on this plan specifically for you. And it's not just copy and pasted, you know, computer generated recommendations. It's taking a look at your specific needs, your blood work. Um, and that value grows over time as you get tested, you know, periodically, we can see trends and see like, hey, this first test, we thought you were a little high in testosterone, but it turns out you just naturally fall here. Like that's your natural, you know, level for you. And so you can start to see some of those nuances over time, um, which is really interesting and helpful relative to, you know, just seeing a single snapshot of your blood. Kirk and I test a lot of things out. And we recommend everything we love and we steer people away from everything we don't. But one of the quick like red flags that goes up with us is anytime someone uses a product to sell a bigger product. Mm. So I'm not trying to lead you into anything here, but let's say that I am 5,000 IUs a day in deficit of vitamin D. Is that something you guys sell? No. So you're not giving test results and also selling the answer? No. So we do not specifically, we'll give you supplement recommendations. Um, Douglas Labs is one that has given us assays and has been tested for kind of purity and quality, but we'll give you general recommendations and we'll say, go to Amazon and get this or you know wherever you can find it, here's a brand that we like, but we have no you know affiliation. We get no, <laughs> no compensation based on supplement recommendations, so. Well, I, I like that initially. Yeah, so you, you're free to get whatever it is you want. Um, there can be a lot out there too. So I get a lot of questions from athletes about, you know, brands and specific recommendations because it can be a little daunting to just Google vitamin D supplement. Do you work with uh, uh, Safe Sport or uh, not Safe Sport, um, uh, USADA's drug list or anything, the clean performance? I forgot what the label is they throw on it. Is it? It, it's not safe sport, is it? What's the label they throw on supplements? The SFS. Um, yeah. So I just with my athletes personally, I make sure to check to make sure that you know everything is cleared so that they're not going to get dinged for blood uh, doping or mm -hmm. you know, drug tested um, in their sport. But um, everything that we would recommend has gotten a clean clean bill of health, as it were. Um, but okay. again, we're not tied to any specific brand or company. So, you know, it's kind of up to the individual if they're partial to one brand uh, versus another. Okay. I'll be, uh, I'll be doing my athlete blood test next week as well, Bracken. Um, one thing I was impressed with when um, we had an initial conversation was the differentiation between the men's and women's blood testing. In fact, it's a little more work on the women's end because don't you have to go in more than once so you can get specific based on where you're at in your cycle? So you don't have to get tested more than once. We recommend that women test on day three of their cycle. So that would be the third day of their period. And this okay. is helpful because this is kind of a way to standardize those levels. But excuse me, if they do test on a different day, we just ask that they let us know when they test so that we can analyze that accordingly. Because otherwise I might think, oh my gosh, 
her progesterone levels is so high. Really, it's ideal for that phase that she was tested in. But if I think that she's in a different phase, it might look out of range. So you're at least very specific with like what you'd like the women to test on so you have more clarity of the results. Right. Um, this is actually something that popped up yesterday. I have an athlete that I'm working with out on the West Coast, and he has not really made many improvements in six months. And he's actually had this slow decline in ability to handle training or to mm -hmm. handle really any stress. For example, it's to the point now where we had a deload, we removed intensity, we started building aerobically and 30 minute bike on Monday. And he said he's like jello legged until Thursday. Uh, oh. He had to move a heavy something with his family the other day. And he was like crampy quad and shoulder spasming later. Like we've removed volume, we've removed intensity, we've tried an aerobic build, um, we've re reduced intensity, duration, and frequency. Um, at what point does someone say, I need to go in for blood testing? That would definitely be a case where he should get tested. Um, I hear a lot of red flags there. And actually, I recommend athletes get tested um, even if they're not symptomatic, because you often are low or high in some things well before we start to see symptoms. So you, it's not until your body gets to a pretty low point at which you start seeing symptoms. Um, so if they can get in, they might think, oh, I feel fine. They get their blood work. We see some areas for improvement. They fix those and they're like, oh my gosh, I feel better. And I didn't even think I felt bad. So yeah. It's kind of one of those where you don't know what you don't know. And so especially if they're symptomatic um, and, and to the degree that you spoke to, I would highly recommend that they get some some blood work done. Okay. And it does for the average athlete, is it necessary to go high end or are there kind of like your general practitioner, will those tests tell you what you need to know as an athlete? That's a great question. So I don't recommend that athletes go to their doctor for this blood work for a couple of reasons. Um, aside from the fact that it can be tough to get in to see the doctor um, to get blood work, especially if they're not symptomatic. Doctors are very hesitant to do blood work if someone is you know, healthy. Um, they don't really care if you're not hitting your PR. <laughs> they're like, you're not, you're not diseased, you're not dying, you're healthy in my mind. Um, but if a doctor does do blood work, they're looking for deficiency in disease and they're going to compare your blood to the general population. And that is going to be classified as the quote normal. But what's normal for the general population who's sedentary is very different from ideal for an athlete, especially an endurance athlete. So we at Athlete Blood Test have taken over 10 years worth of data to refine this range for an athlete. And that's going to be based on different variables like what sport are you doing? How much are you training? So it's very specific to each person. And so again, it's not looking at, well, what's ideal for staying alive, but what's going to be optimal for your performance. And so that's a huge difference. Um, Cause I see a lot of athletes who will say like, yeah, my doctor said my iron is fine. And I'll take a look and their ferritin is like super low. And I'll be like, yeah, we're going to fix this. <laughs> so okay. yeah, that's a great question. All right. Well, I, I'm, I mean, we could go for a lot longer, but we do have to wrap this up. My final question that I like to ask anyone who is not a man who comes on here is it's the same question. Kirk and I are limited by our gender scope and we don't know what we don't know. And it's hard to experience it, but we have a lot of coaches, ourselves included, who are a part of this podcast. 
and we need to hear advice. So what, it's the same question I ask everyone, Kirk, what are the basic pieces that most male coaches miss in the way they deal with female athletes? I would say they don't account for the menstrual cycle whatsoever. Um, there's no changes in nutrition. There's no, and nutrition can kind of be outside of their scope too, depending on the coach, but they, they just don't take into account the cycle in terms of how they're periodizing their training. Um, and they kind of expect women to perform like men, meaning relatively consistently week to week. And our physiologies are just very different. And so you'll see some pretty big discrepancies in performance and potentially just attitude and motivation um, depending on the athlete, where they are in their cycle. So if you can give them a little bit of a break that week before their period and that those first two weeks, that's when they're primed to do the high intensity work, do the weightlifting, you know, PR. And then that second half of their cycle, you want to back off, do some lower intensity work, mobility, technique, stretching. Um, and then if you can just take kind of an off week or recovery light week, right before their period. That's the first time we've had that answer. It is. It is. Are you happy with that, Bracken? Can I ask my final one? I am. I'm happy with that. Cool. Me too. Um, and I still do got to get to work. But I just want to know, you've been, God, you've just given so much great information so willingly. And I really appreciate it, Anna. Um, are you currently taking new clients or, or athletes at the moment, personally? Yes, I am. So um, if they want to reach out, they're more than welcome to. My website is dranaroby.com. Um, Can you say that one then, more time just in case it didn't catch? Yep. So it's dranaroby, D-R-A-N-N-A-R-O-B-Y.com. Um, and I'm also on Instagram too, at dranaroby. Um, otherwise, they can also find me through Athlete Blood Test. If you just Google athlete blood test or go to athletebloodtest.com. Um, that's another place that they can get in touch with me. So, but yeah, I absolutely love working with athletes. It's really fun to integrate the research as well as just my personal passion and experience with it. So I'm all about helping athletes kind of fuel and feel their best. I have a few people I know, I think that will probably, when this drops on Friday, you're probably going to, hopefully you're a little busier with your email. That's all I'm going to say. Well, I appreciate that. It's been such a joy chatting with you guys. You guys have great questions. They're so fun to talk to. Flattery will get you far with us, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> and, and outside of working with just athletes, what else do you offer? What What do you bring to the table? In terms of like services? Yeah. Or, yeah. So I really work with individualizing, uh, you know, recommendations and working with what they need. I don't have cookie cutter approaches. So everything I do is customized to the athlete. And that can be everything from modulating macronutrients on a daily basis based on their, their workouts. Uh, I have some high end athletes who they'll send me like their training peaks and I will go in and change their macro recommendations daily based on whatever their training is all the way to, I've had some clients who want to work with intuitive eating and They've had issues with the relationship with food. And so they want to kind of move past that and kind of heal that relationship and kind of stop feeling like they're a slave to the scale or their, you know, my fitness pal or some sort of tracker and really get to a healthier place in their eating. So there's a lot of different ways that we can work um, with athletes to get them to feel their best, whether they're just getting into sports, they're peaking, or if they're trying to kind of phase out. That's another thing that I see is people looking to kind of retire or take a step back and they're like, I don't know how to eat. 
you know, if I'm not training or if it's the off season, what am I supposed to be eating? How much do I need? And so that's another adventure that we can uh, dive into. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for your time today. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. It's been really fun. Thank you.